Father, this morning we just come to you. We come to you, Father, and first we surrender ourselves, our hearts, our soul, our mind, our body, Lord. Unless you give us understanding. Like Pilate, truth can stand before us. Truth can speak to us. Yet we will walk away without knowing who is that is speaking to us. Open our eyes. As you did with your disciples, O Lord. Your word says you open the eyes of their understanding so they could understand scripture. And your scripture is truth. Help us to hear. Help us to understand. Help us to believe. Help us to obey. Because everything ultimately rests in us obeying your word. For you promised us in your word, if you're willing and obedient, you will eat the best of the land. The best God has to offer us. Speak to us. For in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Over the weeks we've been looking at the concept of the Bible talks about truth. And we saw the five pillars or foundations of, uh, we're not turning there from Isaiah 65, 16, God as the God of truth. John 14, 6, Jesus as truth. John 17, 17, as the word as truth. And uh, John 16, 13, the Holy Spirit has the spirit of truth. And for us, 1 Timothy 3.15, the church being the pillar and the foundation of truth. We also saw how because man was primarily in the beginning created in God's image, we've been, our minds have been wired in such a way that we cannot function without truth. So if we do not know the truth which is God and how God functions, we automatically rewire ourselves and create our own truth, which is basically a lie, which may be factual, but it is not the truth. And the danger is ultimately, when we stand before God, everyone, scripture says, it's appointed unto man to die once. Everyone will die once. And then it is judgment. And on judgment day, we are judged by truth. So, the beginning of passing over judgment is when we are born again by the truth. And God's word is the truth. On the face of it, it looks scary. In John chapter 1 and verse 17, you should be very familiar with this verse by now. Scripture says, law came through Moses, was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The law here, to many represents the unrelenting, unbending face of God, the very holiness of God, the law. And law is very scary, actually. That's why even if the policeman inside is a very kind person, people don't like policemen and courts because the law always is scary. So Moses was a very scary person. Though he was the kindest, the meekest, 
the most humble man who walked on earth, people didn't really like him because law was given through him. And we see wherever the law goes, it always often brings death. And uh, man tries to see law that way, but that's not the actual picture of law. If you're honest, we will see the truth of the law. Romans 7.14 talks about the truth of the law. And Paul is talking himself here. We know that the law is spiritual. But I, we, are carnal, sold under sin. The law is spiritual. There's absolutely nothing wrong with law. The law is holy because the law giver is holy. There's absolutely nothing wrong with the law. And if without laws, actually, we can never function as a person, as a home, as a church, as a society, as a nation. You cannot function. Most of the issues individuals face in their life, if you pin it down, is got to those areas where we are lawless. Okay, because law always brings order and where there is order, you can always function smoothly. And most of our issues in life is that those areas of our life is outside the law. And the law is not bad. And Paul is a very honest man who says, you know, the law is spiritual. But he says the problem is not with the law. He says the problem is with me. I am carnal. I'm not a spiritual person. He says sold under sin. So the honest man will always see the law is good. So you have law coming through Moses and grace and truth coming through Jesus Christ. You have these two absolutely different pictures. And we never see that different picture until Jesus steps into this world and he comes. And it's a stunning difference. The Pharisees technically represented the law. They misrepresented the law, actually. Can't say they represented the law. While Jesus represented grace and truth. And the question is, why did this, they look so different? Why did they look so different? Why do they, why did Jesus look so different in his behavior? When he actually fulfilled the law to the T, why was he so different from the Pharisee? And the Pharisees preached the same law. People ran from the Pharisees. Sinners ran from the Pharisees. Well, sinners ran to Jesus. Okay, so we will continue our study. Okay, today I want to look at one of uh, the Proverbs, because you see the book of Proverbs in so many ways is like the essence of God's wisdom. That's why 31 chapters, one for each day. Okay, and if you have only 30 days, then read two chapters that day. But it is like, if you want to take the wisdom, not the whole wisdom of God, nothing can contain it, but make it into capsules, it is the book of Proverbs. Unbelievably fantastic. Okay, Proverbs 3 and verse 4. Okay, so find favor and high esteem in the sight of God and man. Okay, when Jesus walked on earth, he found favor with God and favor with man. People loved Jesus. Okay, 
Now, if you honestly look at it, this should be the goal of every man, every woman, every child. Lord, I want favor with God, esteem with God, and with man. Lord, when I go to my workplace, I want favor from you, and I want favor from my boss. Lord, I want favor. This should be the actual goal of everybody. Children, children go to school, they need favor from God and favor from the teachers. You know, people make such great hard efforts to be successful, to acquire wealth and name, esteem. Yet God puts favor far above all this, far above. In Proverbs 22 and verse 1, a good name is to be chosen rather than great riches. Loving favor rather than silver or gold. God says, you see, the whole purpose of the teaching in the church is to change the way we think. Because we come from the world. We were born in the world, reared in the world, taught in the world. And then from the world, we come into the church. And you don't need to hear the world here. You need to hear the word here. In the world, certain things are very important. No? Great riches, silver and gold. People are after all these things. But God says, favor. The good name and favor is to be sought much more than anything the world can offer. And you see people like that in the Bible. You see that. You see two people mentioned in the Bible. One in the Old Testament, one in the New. In Second Samuel, it is written about Samuel in verse 26, 226. And the child Samuel grew in stature and in favor both with the Lord and with men. And we all grow in stature, some more, some less. But everybody doesn't grow in favor with God and man. And here is somebody, here is Samuel, growing in favor. And this is something which God says should be esteemed greater than anything else in the world. Favor with God and man. And here Samuel growing in favor with God and man. You know, that's how actually children should grow. Children who are born in a household of God should grow that. As they are growing, they find more favor with God and with man. And about Jesus, almost similar words are written in Luke 2.52. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature in favor with God and men. Okay? Growing in favor. So we see these, these, these similar Words is written, words written about both young Samuel and young Jesus. But you need to realize, both these young ones, when they were young, they set their goal and they adjusted their lives accordingly. You see, ultimately you achieve what you aim for. If you aim for riches and you work hard, maybe you achieve it. You aim for education, you work hard, you achieve it. Nothing is achieved without aiming and working for it. And if it is, you will lose it very soon. Because you won't value it. Favor is something you aim at and you work at. So the Bible is very, very, very clear that people who find favor with God also made Adjustments in their life. These are not random choices. 
but they are very clear, deliberate decisions which result in favor. In Samuel's case, he was instructed by his mother Hannah. And he walked in that instruction. He understood the principles. In Jesus' case, you know, the Spirit of God himself taught him. You have to make very clear. Now that's because you are old and out of favor. Nobody is out of favor. You can get back in favor with God. Doesn't matter how old you are. Okay, please. That's the awesomeness of God. God is the father. So it doesn't matter how old you seem. He still looks at you as a child. You can get back in favor with God. But you will have to make very clear, deliberate choices. And remember, the first choice always starts in the heart. You have to choose to set apart God in your heart. In Isaiah 8 and verse 13, the Lord of hosts, him you shall hallow. Hallow means to keep him holy, sanctified. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. Okay, Take it literally. Fear God. Fear God is the healthiest dose of medicine a person can have to keep away from evil. It's a good dose. Every day, Lord, give me a little more of your fear and dread. Set apart God. Know who God is. Set him apart in your heart. That's the first choice you have to make. In 1 Peter 3, 15, in the new covenant, sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. That's where it begins. Okay, this is the first choice of all the people in the Bible you see. If they had favor with God and favor with man, it all begins in the heart and they set God apart in their hearts. They chose. He was the most important, within quotes, object of their affection and attention. So you have to ask yourself this question. If I want favor with God, let me just for a second look into my heart and ask, what is the object of my affection and attention? What comes at the top? And if it is not God, make a decision. I'm going to put God, put at the top. I'm going to make God at the top. And you will realize when you do that, the choices you make each day will change. It will change because God will start defining your choices. He's the most important person in my life, the object of my attention and my affection. Once you have put God at the top for favor, okay, this is how favor, you cannot earn favor. You can only do certain things which brings the favor of God and man into your lives. You cannot earn it. It's not a right. It is something which God grants. Second thing is that after you have put God at the top, second, focus on others. Don't focus on self. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interests of the others. Actually, you get these two together, you got the two commandments. Everything is summed up in this. But this is the practical thing God is saying. Sanctify God in your heart. Hallow God in your heart. Put him at the top of your affection, your attention. Second, think about others more than you think about yourself. This is the sum total of the two commands. Other than the general things that is normal about all of us, everyone sitting here, 
has been gifted with something unique. Something that is just yours, which God has given you. You have to identify it. I know what is mine. And I was called to teach. And that's a gift I got. Identify it. Maximize it. And utilize it. Use it for the glory of God and the service of man to the utmost. Okay? Everybody has something. You cannot say. Even you, you may not have five, you may not have three, but one talent. God has, nobody will come and say, Lord, I couldn't do anything because you gave me nothing. Nobody. That's not a father. I'm talking within the kingdom of God. Okay, those who are born in the kingdom of God. There is something which God has given you. Just God has given you. And you need to realize everything in your life, even before you were formed in his mother's womb, God knew you. Even though you did not go, God was working behind everything. I look back into my life much, much, much before I knew God. I see he had planned out my life so that he could use me for his glory. Everything was planned out by him. So you need to realize there's a supernatural God, a person, a father who is working behind the scenes. And that's how you take a look back at your life and you see your life in a pattern and you say, hey, this is the reason I was born. And you know, I'm going to hallow God in my heart. I'm going to work, utilize, maximize that gift. One or two. Some of you have two. Some of you have three. Like Pastor Vijay can sing and preach. I can't. I love pastors who can sing and preach. It's an unbelievable talent. You know, two of the most, most uh, useful gifts when you have to minister to people. Song and speak. You know, but I can't sing. If I sing, the crowd will go. If I preach, they come back. Okay. And so, you know, some people have one, some people have more, people like Jesus, Paul and all operated in all the gifts. But what I'm saying, know your gift. Know your gift. If you want favor with God and favor with man and keep growing in favor with God and man, identify, maximize, use it to glorify God and to serve mankind. Understand? Okay? If you have a gift, understand that this is, you see, like I was telling the pastors yesterday, in any given situation you are facing in life, there will be many facts. But there is only one truth. Many facts. Leave the facts aside. Focus on the truth. It's like going and ordering dosa. The dosa is the truth. There will be chutney and sambar and all those things. You see, even if these things are not there, you can still eat your dosa and go. But what's the point in all these things without dosa? Our problem is we look at all the facts and miss the truth that is staring at our face. And because we miss the truth, we are not free in our situation. Remember I told you about David. Sinned, messed, judgment, child is dying on his face seven days, fasting, child died, he rose up. Anointed, showered, then worshipped, came back, asked for food. Servants asked this question, Lord, how can you do that? When he was dying, you were weeping, now he's dead, you are eating. He said, I know he will not come back to me, but I know I will go to him. That is the truth of that situation that sets you free. That makes you worship. Understand, there were so many facts over there. Yes, I sinned, this is, I brought the death of my son. I did, I did, I cried, God, you know, all those are facts. What is the truth? It sets you free. In every situation, ask God, Lord, give me the discernment to know your truth in this situation 
That is the truth you handle and all the facts, facts are on the sidelines. The truth will always set you free. So always understand the truth of everything. Ask God, Lord, show me. Like when I'm saying, talking about everybody has a gift. You cannot say you cannot have a gift. Then God is not, then a respecter of persons. When scripture says God is not a respecter of persons, meaning he's fair. He's fair. And you will not be judged for more than what you were given. He will only judge you according to what was given. So if you have only one and somebody has ten, don't worry about it. When you stand before God, he will not ask you about the ten, nine you did not have. He will only ask you about the one you had. That is the awesomeness of God. But understand this thing about what God gives. This is the truth. By the way, everything is given. Everything is given. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 7. And who makes you differ from another? What do you have that you did not receive? Now if you did indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? It's a very simple thing. There is no human being sitting here or anywhere who has something which he did not receive. You may have worked on it and made it better, but you cannot work on something which you haven't received first. So the question is, God says, what are you proud about? What are you proud about? So first thing, remember, it was given. So that keeps you humble. It was given. It was given. So Lord, it's not mine. You gave it. I did. I was not born with it. I received it. Second, it's the principle of what is given. Stewardship of what is given. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 28 and 29, this is about that guy who had one talent and he hid it. Take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. For everyone who has more will be given. He will have abundance, but from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. This is God's law. He gave me a gift of teaching. If I don't keep on using it, maximize it, he will take it away and give it to somebody else. But if I keep on using it, he will give me more access to knowledge and truth and open more doors. That's the way he works. He will not accept waste in his kingdom. He does not accept laziness in his kingdom. Because he is a hard worker. There is a principle. To everyone who has, more will be given. This is not socialism. More will be given. Whatever it is. To all those who are gifted, and I am telling you, and I am warning you, keep using it. Ask God, I will use it. Use it, Lord. And you will work on it. If you've got a gift to sing or play music, keep working on it. Keep working on it and say, Lord, my job is to work. Your job is the opportunity. And you think about that little boy called David practicing in his guitar guitar or harp out in the wilderness and practicing on his sling. Nobody. There was a God who was watching. And those two things will bring him favor with God and favor with man. Okay? So sometimes you don't realize it may be a very, very simple skill. But you disregard it. Because there is this principle God has in his universe. That is the nature of stewardship. So everything is given. Everything is given. And what is given? Work on it. Work on it. God doesn't accept sloth, laziness, and God does not accept people wasting their talents or hiding their talents. That is something he does not. 
Do your part, he will do his part. And then, understand this, God extends absolute, total ownership of everything. He is the creator and everything else is created, including you, me and our gifts. And he uses people and gifts as he pleases. So don't get offended if you have this incredible gift and he doesn't use you for a season. Doesn't use you for a season. Romans 9.15 And he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whomever I have compassion. That's his nature. In 19 to 23, he says, You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, Why have you made me like this? Then, does not the potter have the power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? What if God, wanting to show his wrath to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he had prepared beforehand for glory? Meaning God is saying, God is saying, just shut up and accept me, I am God. Don't ask, why did you do that to that? Because you don't know. Like I said, we have only facts. That is also limited. We don't know the truth about anybody. Only God knows. We may say, Lord, that is not fair. He will say, shut up and sit down. You don't know what you are talking about. Okay, so we don't know, which is the truth. I said, we can only have facts. Which is what is presented in the court as evidence. And the judge can go only by what is presented. And sometimes a guy who looks so guilty in our eyes just goes scot-free. Because the judge doesn't have access to truth. But he only goes free from this court. Will be trapped in another court. Where he is not judged by evidence. He is judged by truth. Okay. So but when you read this. Don't misunderstand that God is that one mean-spirited, what we call in English, capricious, arbitrarily doing person. That's why all the gods, many, many gods of different cultures are all mean-looking. But that's the picture people have. But our God is not. He's the most loving, kind, wonderful person you will ever meet. But you will only know it when it is revealed to us by the Spirit through the Word and the person of Jesus Christ. We may not fully understand what he's doing. But if you study closely the word and observe the life of Jesus, we actually can understand to a limit the nature and the character of God. It will set you free. Let me tell you a couple of very important things. God will surely judge. He has judged from the beginning and there is this end time unbelievably tough judgment that is coming. God will surely judge. But don't mistake it. Judgment is not his goal. Redemption is. Always keep that in mind. Because that will change your life forever. God's goal is not to judge. God's goal is to redeem. That even when he judges, he judges keeping his goal Redemption in mind. So if you ask this question, do you know God? 
Do we understand God? We need to try to understand. If you ask this question, what is the difference between Saul and David? The answer is, David was a bigger sinner. But he understood the heart of God and changed accordingly. Because you cannot change to what God wants you to be unless you know what God is like. In Psalm 103 and verse 8, the Lord is merciful, gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in mercy. This man knew God. This man knew God. You learn who God is by studying the word and understand how he deals with men and women. How he deals with Israel and Judah and how he deals with the church throughout the Bible, you see. And you actually realize he doesn't sound like what I thought he was. He's actually very, very patient, very merciful, very gracious, very slow to anger, abounding in mercy. You know how often we lose our temper over little things? And you notice that God hasn't lost his temper over us all these days? Can you imagine if God loses his temper? That's it. Enough. I'm done with you. In an instant, we are transported to another realm, awaiting judgment. But you know how unbelievably patient and gracious he is? You see, what God is looking for, the most misunderstood, underestimated word in the Bible, what God is looking for is repentance. That's what God is looking for. David understood repentance better than any Old Testament saint or most New Testament saints. He knew that is what God is looking. Look at his verses, his cry in Psalm 51, verse 16 and 17. You you do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These of God you will not despise. This man understood. You see, we are always trying to earn God's favor by doing more and more and more and more and more religious works. Without doing that one thing he's looking for, like I was telling somebody yesterday, you have on your chart 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. You do 2 to 10, but leave one out. And God is always focusing on one. One thing. He told Martha, Martha, you are worried about so many things, Martha. One thing was required. What, Martha? Martha, just think for a minute, Martha. I'm trying to put it across in my words. Martha, if you had come and sat at my feet like Mary and sat there and listened to my word, you would have been so full of peace. And then when I finished, both of you could have gone and worked like sisters happily, cooked for me and brought. Instead, you are sitting over there while she's sitting over here and you are mad at her because you missed the first part. See, if repentance is there, that's at the top. Repentance means changing towards the way God thinks and reacting the way God wants. So two, three, four, five, six, seven is all taken care of. God says, you do not desire sacrifice at all, so I would give it to you. Now, this is a king. Not I I goofed up. Okay, let me do, okay. Uh, What did I do? Adultery. Okay, 10,000 rams. And what did I do? Lied. Okay, 20,000 rams. And what did I do? I murdered Uriah Uriah. Okay, 30 camels. He's a king. But he says, I know, Lord, 
What you desire is a broken heart. And if I can come to you with a broken and a contrite spirit, you don't want anything else from me. That's all you ask. Everything else you will provide. If I come to you with a broken spirit and a broken heart, the sacrifice you will provide. That's your son. But the broken heart and the spirit, I have to provide. And we don't realize how God functions. How God functions. That's how God functions. And this is a man who understood it. That's what Isaiah 66, 1 and 2 is actually talking about. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. Where is the house you will build for me? See, what are you talking about? You can make something for me. Lord, we built this church for you, he says. What did you say? You built a church for me? Oh, well, this is my footstool. Earth is my And where is the place of my rest? For all these things my hand has made and all those things exist, says the Lord. But on this one will I look on him who is poor of a contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. This one, one thing alone, all the eyes of God, scripture says, is ranging over the whole earth, looking into the hearts. Who is broken over his sin? That's why I said it begins with an attitude in your heart by hallowing God, putting God apart up at the center of your affections and your attention. And he says, I'm looking for that. Look how he associates in verse 3. He who kills a bull is as if he slays a man. He who sacrifices a lamb as if he breaks a dog's neck. He says, when you come to me with your repentance... And all your sacrifices, no? All this hard work you do in my name. He says, it's like this. If you kill a bull, in my eyes, it's like you killed a man. If you sacrifice a lamb, as if you offered me a dog. He who offers a grain offering, as if offering me pig's blood. He who burns incense, as if he blesses an idol. Just to have their chosen their own ways, their soul delights in their abominations. He says, you know what? If you come to me with all your works minus repentance, this is how I see your work. It can't be anything in the new covenant, serving in the church or whatever in the home, missions, whatever you want to say. But if there is no broken heart and a broken spirit, he says, this is how I will look at all your work. You have to read the content. That's why God is saying, that's why Piramba Pastor Vijay talking many times on Wednesdays and Sundays, he who trembles at the word. Every time you hear or read the word of God in whichever format, you know what God is looking at even now as you're listening to the word of God? God is looking into your heart to see, how are you reacting to the word? That's all he looks. Because how are you reacting to the word is exactly who you are. Who you are. That's the real person. Okay. And that's how God actually deals with people. And he's very gracious, very kind. He doesn't expect more than you have. No, don't, ex- don't worry about. You have to be where you are according to your age. But you need to be there. Because Jesus grew. As a little child. He grew in wisdom, in stature, favor with God, and faith. There is a growth. There is a growth. Look at Proverbs 4 and verse 18. 
The path of the just is like the shining sun that shines ever brighter into the perfect day. I was teaching the pastors about that, you know. If you are, God says, if you are walking in repentance, you are somebody who is called just. Their path is like the shining day. It begins with a little glow in the eastern sky in the morning, little. Then as it rises, 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 until it becomes the perfect day. When it is the perfect day, the sun is right above you and there is no shadow. There is no shadow. And that's what Psalm 37 says, He shall make the righteousness of your cause shine like the noonday sun. What is it actually saying? Meaning that justice on a course his understanding of God, his revelation of God, because truth is put in terms of light, he's always growing, 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 growing. That's what we are talking about. Is there a move onward movement in your life in the knowledge of God, knowing who he is? And it cannot happen unless he reveals, like I was telling yesterday and Wednesday, this is a locked book. All the intellect and hard work you can bring from any field will not unlock this book. Because unless God unlocks, you cannot understand what he is saying. This is not intellectually discerned. This is only spiritually discerned. That's why the most intellectual people can get a DD, a doctorate in this and go to hell. Because he simply doesn't open. He opens and he closes eyes. And he opens and closes eyes by looking at our hearts. That's what he is talking about. God offers truth to every man, woman and child sitting here and those who will be listening all over the world and reading their Bibles at various points in life. But sadly many, if not most, will rebel and reject the truth he offers. So you know what he does? He also justly blinds them over in ignorance. But others rejoice and obey. And to the light he shows. And God offers them more and more and more understanding. That's why in Proverbs 23, 23, Solomon said, By truth. By truth, don't sell it. It is expensive. It will cost you. By truth, Don't sell it. And also what? Wisdom, instruction and understanding. You have to buy it. Doesn't come cheap. It will cost you. Sometimes the cost of buying truth may cost you everything in life. But unless you value truth as God himself, the value, God has truth, the person of Jesus Christ, you will not be willing. See, you always will sacrifice in life for what you value. Parents value their children, so they sacrifice for their children. Children value careers, so they sacrifice for their careers. Everybody sacrifices for what they value. God says, by truth, by wisdom, by understanding, by instruction, don't sell it, value it. Don't throw it away. Don't throw it, treasure it. Don't throw it away. Choose wisely now when you are young. Spend your time and your energies on things which are truly valuable in eternity. 
Please know this. God is not a respecter of persons. Truth and wisdom, but God is talking about and understanding are not dependent on intellect or teachers. They are dependent on faith and obedience. In the world, it is different. All your skills are dependent upon intellect and teachers and hard work and all that. But in the kingdom of God, no. Truth and wisdom, understanding, everything is on faith. Do you believe what God has said? Two, do you obey what you have heard? A young man or woman can easily exceed older people. Only if he fears God and obeys him and trusts his word. Your age is not a factor. Don't bring age over here. Oh no, I am too young. Question is, how much are you willing to obey and walk in obedience? Look at young men. In Genesis 41, 38, 39, And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find such a one as this, a man in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, In as much as God has shown you all this, there is no one as discerning and wise as you. And the Pharaoh realized, this young dude who is only 30 years old, just come out of prison, is smarter than all my intellectual counselors and wise men. He's only 30. And don't ever think kings don't surround themselves with all these politicians all will come and speak. Their speeches are written by them, their decisions are made by everybody. They got a whole battery of incredibly experts of every field surrounding them. And they will take all their opinion and make the final call. Surrounded by the, the most powerful nation then on earth, the Pharaoh, surrounded by all these intellectuals and witch doctors and astrologers, magicians. And this young boy comes out of prison. The Pharaoh recognizes something. He says, you know what? There is no one as discerning and wise as you, but he also recognizes that it is your God who has shown you that. It's your God who gave it. It's your God. So don't look at age. Don't look at age. In Daniel verse chapter 1 and verse 17, scripture says, as for these four young men, mark this, God gave them. If you look at all the children of in that, in that university, the King's University, who are doing the same course in the same college for three years, see, there is, there is a limit. Doesn't matter how hard you walk, work, after some time your body shuts down. So at that level, all are the same. It doesn't matter how much you want to work, at the end of 24 hours, the day is over. Daniel doesn't get 25 because his God is the God of the universe. He doesn't get 25. He also only gets 24. So there is a limit when your body shuts down and the same limit for your time. But God gave them knowledge and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. It is God who gave them. That's what is called favor. It is God who gave them. Why? Because of the decisions these four young men took in the beginning. They said, you know what? We will hallow God in our heart. He shall be the object of our affections and our attentions. And God said, you know what? I will honor you. You look at Job in trouble. 
And you have these three wise friends who comes and gives all this counsel. And they're all old men. All four are old, including Job. And then there's a young man called Elihu over there who is waiting for all the older people to finish talking. And when they finish talking, as a young man, he comes in and he apologizes for speaking because he's too young and they're all old. But this is what he says. So Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzite, answered and said, I am young in years and you are very old. Therefore, I was afraid. And dare not to declare my opinion to you. I said, age should speak and multitude of years should teach wisdom. But there is a spirit in man and the breath of the Almighty gives him understanding. Great men are not always wise, nor do the aged always understand justice. You know, he's the one who actually spoke as God spoke. What his counsel was exactly what God wanted him to say. And you know what? At the end of it, when Job repents and all, God says, I'm wrought. I'm angry with your three friends. Pray for them. He never asked Job to pray for Elihu. Accept his counsel. Yet he is the youngest. Yet he is the youngest. So please understand, it's not your age. It's your heart. Do you hallow God? Do you value those things which God values? Then God will move on your behalf. Another young man in the, in the old, in the New Testament, Acts chapter 7, verse 58. This is Stephen being cast, uh, being killed. They cast him out of the city, stoned him, and the witnesses lay down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. There's a man called Saul who's a young man. Later God will use him to write one third almost half of the New Testament. And an older man who began much earlier than him, his walk and his call and discipleship training under Jesus Christ, writes about this young man in Second Peter chapter 3, 15 and 16. Consider the long suffering of our Lord is salvation as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him has written to you as also in all his epistles speaking in them of these things which are some things hard to understand. He says, you know what? God has given him more understanding than me. What he writes, I don't understand. That's why we are all asked, Pastor Vijay, how many chapters he has gone in his Bible study with the book of Romans? You can read the book of Romans in one day. You will take your whole lifetime to crack that book. Which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction as do they also. So what is Peter talking about Paul's epistles? Scriptures. Scriptures. It's a young man. So please understand this. Do not make excuses saying I'm young, I'm too old. None of these things matter. If you're old, it doesn't matter. Moses was 80 years old when he stood before God for 40 days and 40 nights and came down with the law. 40 days. The presence of God. So it doesn't matter. Only thing, know what matters. How do you respond to God? When God's word comes, is there a quickening? Is there is a turning back? Is there a cry? Maybe you don't have the strength, which we don't have. You hear and you cut and say, Lord, I don't. I know this is true. I don't have the strength. But Lord, I know one thing. This is true. This is what I want to do because this is what you would do. Give me the strength and he honors your prayer. We don't even have the strength. But he gives us the strength. What he looks is, do you have a desire? Do you have a desire? 
We were always in the classroom when we were teaching years before we came into ministry. One thing is that you realize, you cannot teach students who have no desire to study. I used to, my kids, students used to come and say, Pastor, sir, what should I do? I said, go be an electrician. You like playing with the switchboard more than your books. You will be good at that. You will be an excellent electrician. You are very good. You are in charge of the boarding hall, electricity. Yes, sir. So good. You make good money. There is dignity in every kind of work. You would be a misfit in a government office. What will you do? The files will be sitting there in the office also. You will be turning the screws. See, you cannot teach people who do not have a desire. So God also, when he speaks... He knows we don't have the strength. He knows who. Who is man? What is man that you're mindful of us here today, gone tomorrow, like the wisp, like the grass? But he's looking, do we have the desire? If he has the desire, he provides the strength. If you don't have the desire, there's nothing you can do. So the question is, he is, who is he that who trembles at my word? Right? I was telling on Wednesday or yesterday, Abimelech, without knowing because of Abraham's weakness, took Sarah. God just spoke to me in a dream. That man and his entire household was so terrified. He told all his counselors, servants, he called and said, do you know what this man did? He shouted at Abraham and said, why did you do this? Why did you tell this woman was your wife? He said, because I did not see any fear of God. He's making an excuse as if there is no fear of God in the office, so I should be corrupt. Nonsense. <laughs> what an excuse, right? You, you have to always, when you read scripture, you have to bring it to your level and say, how does it apply to me? Abraham is saying, there is no fear of God in your city, therefore I will say my wife is my sister. And in your office, you will say, no, everybody is corrupt, so I will also be corrupt. <laughs> that truth will never set you free. One vision, one dream, the man was trembling and said, please, please, pray for me too. And Abraham prays. But ten plagues later, the Pharaoh's heart is so hardened that God allows it to get even more hard blinds him to the reality that is waiting for him, allows his army and the chariots to go into the Red Sea and destroys all of them. Just God. God could have opened his eyes. Don't go. Don't go. Can you think about it? This is a sea parting. The people are walking across and <laughs> common sense, even none of us would go there. You would think, why did God blind them? So you go. This is judgment for you. Go. I will, I will see that your will will not stop you. You will go and I will destroy you because you ignored my word over and over and over and over. Remember Jehoiakim? When they read the scroll, he cut it, he cut it, he cut it, threw into the fire. He ignored the word of God. God said, you know what? You will be one king who will die. And will be cast outside the city of Jerusalem. Die without peace. And you will get a donkey's burial. You will be the only king of Israel and Judah. Who will die like that. Why? Because you despised my word. That's what God is talking about. Even if you are neutral about the word. Please don't despise the word. Yet God is looking for those. Who tremble at his word. Because the consequences of rejecting the truth. The light. It's very dangerous. It is eternal. 
In Proverbs 21 and verse 16, a man who wanders from the way of understanding will rest in the assembly of the dead. Assembly of the dead. What has the church become? Instead of the assembly of the living or the assembly of God, ages, it has become AD. Assembly of the, you know, so many, it's not my job, but I know so many churches are assembly of the dead because if you see what has become acceptable in those churches, you know this has become the assembly of the dead because God has moved out. Said you want it that way? I will let you. I will let you. Go ahead. Assembly of the dead. Because those who reject the light that is offered walks away further and further and further and further in darkness, like Cain. But Cain, you know, God asked him, where is your brother? What a kind. First he's asking, why are you angry? No, I told you, if your truth is subjective, it will always show in emotions. Why are you angry? When you are angry, you're not dealing with the truth, you're dealing with facts, and the facts is not truth. That's why you always have to be careful about anger. When Jesus was angry, he was angry about the truth. This is my father's house, this should be a house of prayer, and you have made it into a den of thieves. It's very clear, it is based on truth, and the truth and the facts tallied. Our anger doesn't tally. Anger doesn't tally with the truth. Question asks you, why are you angry? Why are you angry? Okay, you're angry with your brother. Let me ask you one question. Okay, you goofed up. Leave that aside. Did he do any harm to you? Did you do any? Whenever you're angry with somebody, first question you need to ask is, what did he do to me? Second, what does he owe me? What does he owe me? Who do you think he is? Your servant? You pay him? Even employers are asked how to deal with the employees with respect and with honor and with politeness. Why are you angry? He doesn't receive the truth, goes ahead, kills his brother. The next thing God asks, where is your brother? He said, am I my brother's keeper? Every attempt for the word is coming so that he would tremble at the word and come to repentance. He rejects, he rejects, he rejects. And finally what scripture says, Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt far and further and farther. He is going farther away from the light, more and more into darkness, but in the natural he is building cities and his descendants are building great, 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 great things, but they don't realize ten generations later the judgment is coming and every descendant of Cain will be destroyed. There will be no trace of the history of Cain left on planet earth because their forefather walked away from the light. And if you notice in human history, the farther you go away to the east, the darker the souls of men has been. And we all live in the east. Further and further and further and further and further into darkness we go. Why? We accept every abomination we and we celebrate it. Reason we walk away from the light that is shown. So be careful. Never underestimate what it means to walk away from the light, the truth. And what happens is people are not even able to see the error of their thinking. You killed your brother and you are saying, I'm my brother's keeper. <laughs> now with all our education, will anybody say that? Unless God hands you to a warped thinking. 
That's why scripture says their minds become darkened. The thinking becomes futile. The more you and I ignore truth, the more God hands people over. Right? We read in Romans. Yeah, let's look at it one second. Romans 1. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts. Futile means useless, weak in their thoughts. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Light is being withdrawn. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and other things. What is it saying? It means he started worshipping the creation instead of the creator. And people do not realize everyone who worships creation has been handed over by God to a darkened thinking. Let me, let me, let me explain it to you because you will think, oh, thank you, Lord. Let's, let's, hang on. Okay, hang on, hang on to your chairs and seat belt, but hang on. Let's look at Matthew chapter 6, verse 31 to 33. Therefore do not worry, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? After all these things the Gentiles seek, those who have been darkened from their thinking, what is their primary thing they are seeking in life? What to eat? What to drink, what to wear, what to work, what to buy, what to earn. You see, most people in the churches also, they think the same way. He says, I have given you over you to worship the creature and not the creator. Morning, you wake up, the first thing is what to eat, what to drink, what to wear, where to work, how much money to make. He says, you don't realize, I haven't handed you over to idolatry. You are your idol. While he says, they those who are darkened, those who do not know God, they seek. For your heavenly father knows that you need all these things. He says, how can we be the child of the living God and run after those who do not know God? You are separated by what you seek. Scripture says in verse 33, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added. He says, when I look into your hearts and I see what you are seeking, that itself separates the children of light and darkness. What you seek shows who you are. See? What do we seek? Remember John Pop pointed out, Behold the Lamb of God! Two of his disciples started following Jesus. Jesus stopped and said, What do you seek? What do you want? Miracle? Healing? Food? Crumbs? <laughs> okay, that's what people followed Jesus for. What do you want? <laughs> they said, Sir, where do you live? He says, Come. Stay with me. What do you seek? Therefore God in his righteousness, because they reject his mercy, allows people to slide into darkness. Into darkness. Remember this entire chapter of Isaiah in 44 about the blinded man who takes a piece of wood and he carves a nice idol god about it, puts it there and bows and worship and then he takes the other piece of wood and makes his food over it. He says, do you know how blind he is? And he does not even realize he is blind. It's an entire about gold or silver, what? You know, that's how we don't realize we worship our certificates, we worship our medals. Some Christian homes you go, you don't see a single Bible. All the medals are put there in the showcase. Oh, this I got in 11, this I got in 12, this is for sprinting, this is for God says, I will bury it all with you. 
know what Isaiah 44 says? 20. He feeds on ashes. A deceived heart has turned him aside and he cannot deliver his soul. Nor is there not a lie in my right hand. Do you know the monkey, how they catch the monkey in the jungles? They get a pot with a small narrow mouth and put a banana or an apple inside. The monkey can put his hand in, but once he grabs the banana or the apple, he cannot pull it out. Now, if he opens his hand, he's free. But he won't open his hand. So with this big button, he's trying to run and the fellow will catch him with his net. God says, you know how blinded people are. They've caught the lie in their hand, but they cannot release it. They cannot release it. He, he cannot deliver his soul because he's holding a lie and won't let go of that lie. My works will take me to heaven. My good works will outweigh God says, what a lie. What a lie. Anyone who does not believe in God's own way, that he sacrificed his son for the redemption of our sins, forgiveness of our sins, any other way, he says, you're holding on to a lie. No man can be good enough for God. No man will be ever good enough for God. No works will ever. All he looks is for a broken and a contrite heart. Sacrifices and offerings I do not desire. Did you see? When we reject truth, because truth is a person, truth rejects us. In Second Timothy 3.13, scripture says, no. But evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse. Deceiving and being deceived. Deceiving and being. The most stunning example of that is Balaam. Balaam is opening his mouth. Blessing, blessing, blessing. Finally he says, I want to die the death of a righteous. And then turns around, gives Balak some advice how to trap the Israelites and goes back to Moab and Joshua comes and cuts him down. Deceived and being deceived. Yet from his mouth, what he's speaking is the very oracles of God, but neither his ears nor his understanding can grasp it. Think about it. The donkey was better than him. That you can speak the very oracle of God, yet God blocks your understanding so you do not receive it. That's why God says, don't play with truth. Don't play with truth. Don't. Deceiving and being deceived. So ask hard questions in life. Very, very hard questions. Because life is not what is on planet earth. That's a, that's a few moments compared to eternity. Ask hard questions. If I go this way, where will I reach? And if I will reach there, what is my guarantee? Show me scripture by which I can stand. Heaven and earth will pass away, but not a dot from his word, he said. I should be able to stand on scripture and say, it is written, that's what I believe, that's what I do, therefore I know where I will be. This is written, this is where I was, I believe, I have repented, I have turned back, therefore I can stand on the mercies of God. You should be able to say. You're not able to say. That's why God has different parameters, but he has given us an objective truth, the word of God. This is there. Let this be your life. Let not anything that does not been sanctioned by this be validated by your experience or your intellect or your thinking. You are in big trouble. Because God will not change truth for anybody. He did not change it for his son too. Therefore we saw in Proverbs 3, 4, so find favor and high esteem in the sight of God. And, and we want favor with God and with man. 
We want. That's what we need. But it doesn't come the way the world looks for favor. Like, that's not how you get favor from God. If you lick his boot, he will kick you out. Okay, don't try that, those things with God. God sees our heart because the Malik is not able to see the heart. He gives his shoes to be licked. <laughs> God doesn't do stuff like that. Please understand. Okay, he doesn't. We want favor with God. Understand this. It's the greatest achievement in life, but it doesn't come automatically. Like I said, there are absolutely deliberate choices one has to make. And choices can be made only if you have light. In the dark, you cannot make choices. You need light. You need truth. You need understanding. See, our mind, our heart, our mind seldom rests. You and I always have thoughts. Even when you are looking at me, I wonder whether you are thinking your thoughts or listening. The question is, what do you think? What do you think? Honestly, you should always look into your mind and what I'm thinking. Am I planning good or am I planning evil? Am I like Haman? Planning evil? Think. Am I, you may not be planning evil against somebody. You may be planning evil just for yourself. Think your thoughts. What are you thinking? Are your thoughts good towards God and good towards man? Or evil towards God, evil towards another, or evil towards self. Check your thought life. In Proverbs 14 and verse 22, scripture says, they do not go astray who do, do they go, do they not go astray who devise evil? They're devising in their minds constantly. Let me ask you, when you are sitting at a home, what do you think? Are you so angry with somebody? Thank God, angry people don't have power. If angry people had power, this world will be full of dead bodies. Cain had power and anger. He killed his brother. Are you devising evil? Thinking evil? God says you will go astray. But mercy and truth belong to those who devise. Good. So first get into your mind. I'm not a psychologist, I'm not asking you to do that, but it says, Lord, change. Scripture says, think on things that are noble, that are good. Noble and good. Change the way you think, because God is not waiting for your action. He sees the thoughts of men and acts accordingly. In Jeremiah 17 and verse 10, I, the Lord, search the heart, I test the mind, even to give every man according to his ways. See, God is sometimes ahead of us, far ahead of us. He looks at Peter and he says, looking what Peter is thinking. And he says, Are, he's planning to do this next week. So today he breaks his leg. Because he loves the person he's planning to kick. Are you getting? We think, oh, I haven't done anything. God says, you're planning. I see you. You're planning. Oh, if only that person comes before him, I will give nicely. Before he can give nicely, he gives nicely. (laughs) According. Please be careful. Be careful. We think actions only matter. God says action is the result of a pattern of thinking. 
If you change your thinking, you will change your action. It's as simple as that. So look into your mind and say, how do I think? And scripture says, on the other hand, we saw in, in 1422, on the other hand, mercy and truth, wow, they are bound. Can we go back to that, 1422? But on the other hand, if you devise good thinking, see, you can think good, you will act good. Joseph's brothers hated him, but he loved them. Before when the father said, your brothers are so far away at Sisham, who will go? He said, I will go. I will go. Therefore, he always found mercy and truth. If you devise good, mercy and truth belong to you. Now, take a break. Take a deep breath. Okay? Deep breath. And listen. Mercy and truth are by nature, they appear contradictory. If I have If I have truth, then I don't need to need mercy. And if he's true, he doesn't need mercy. If I have access to truth, I cannot show mercy. Right? Mercy is required by only somebody who is not true. But mercy and truth belong to How can they come together? It's a contradiction. But God says when these two come together, you have favor with God and favor with man. Now let us look at the first verse we saw. Proverbs 3, 3 and 4. Together. Yeah, 3 and 3 and 4 together. Let not mercy and truth forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart so you find favor and high esteem in the sight of God and man. God is perfect. So in him, mercy and truth are balanced. Scripture talks about he who controls his tongue is a perfect man. It doesn't mean that that man does not talk. Jesus talked a lot. But in his conversation, mercy and truth was always balanced. Scripture is talking about in your thinking and in your affection. Bind them. Mercy and truth. Don't ever let it forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Mercy and truth. Very, very strange, strange combination. It's talking about committing them into our memory and into our affections. The question is, how do you balance opposites? But this is the very nature of God. Mercy is that gentle, forgiving, gracious trait of noble. Not in terms of position, but heart. Men and women. Who would rather take personal injury than fight to hurt someone in their power. While truth is that stubborn commitment to whatever is true, honest and right, regardless of loss as revealed in the word of God. Meaning when you uphold truth, you will take personal loss. When you uphold mercy, you will not injure somebody else. That's the difference. See how wonderfully balanced it has to be. It is like no, no, not even the the most finest instrument can balance that. Only God can. Mercy and truth. They have to be balanced. Jesus was the perfect man 
who had that perfect balance of mercy and truth. No man was more compassionate even to enemies. Yet no man was stricter about truth, though it cost him his life. He forgave easily and quickly, yet in the Bible he is called in Revelation 19.11 other places too, faithful and true. This was God's issue with man in the Old and the New Testament. In Hosea 6.6 he says, For I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And in Matthew 9.13, what did he say? Go around and learn what it means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. He says, you need to understand what it means. God's goal, I like said, is not judgment. But he will judge everyone. And everything finally. But his goal is redemption. Mercy and truth are both unknown to Satan, the devil, and evil men. Satan is a liar, so he does not truth. And he has no mercy, so he's a murderer from the beginning. In John 8 and verse 44, you are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth. He does not stand in the truth. He doesn't know any truth, but he has no mercy. Therefore, he is a murderer. And when the spirit comes upon Cain, Cain will not accept the truth and he kills his brother. We will see this trend in humanity. When he injects his poison into them in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 12. Not as Cain who was the wicked one and murdered his brother. Why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brothers were righteous. You see? The religious elite of Jesus' day lied to Pilate in their eagerness to destroy truth, Jesus. They twisted scriptures to justify their personal revenge. They had no mercy on the most compassionate, absolutely sinless man who ever walked on earth. And because of that, God blinded them completely. They had forsaken both truth and mercy. Their blindness was so complete, the Bible records it this way in Acts 13 verse 27. It's recorded this way. For those who dwell in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not know God nor even the voices of the prophets. They knew the Old Testament by heart. They taught it every day, every Sabbath in the synagogue. They were absolute scholars of the Torah, but they did not understand the Torah. God blinded their eyes, which are read every Sabbath, and God used the prophecy of the Torah they read to fulfill through them that they would kill God's son. Because they first took mercy and truth. Please remember these things. They are important. When our eyes get blinded, listen to Jesus. In Luke 14, verses 1. Now it happened as he went into the house of one of the rulers of the Pharisees to eat bread on Sabbath, that they watched him closely. And behold, there was a certain man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus answering spoke to the lawyers and the Pharisees saying, is it lawful to heal on Sabbath? They kept silent. He took him and healed him and let him go. Then he answered them and saying, 
Which of you having a donkey or an ox that has fallen into a pit will not immediately pull him out on Sabbath day? And they could not answer him regarding these things. He says, do you realize how blinded you are because you have forsaken truth and mercy? When your ox falls into the pit on a Sabbath, you pull it out and don't consider it as work. But if God heals somebody, you call it work. How blinded you are? Because your forsaken mercy and truth and God has blinded you. Do you realize the blindness, the blindness of this nation, how God has blinded? You can kill and rape babies and women and girls, but if you touch a cow, touch a cow, immediately there is fury on the streets. Nine month old baby raped by two men and no uproar on the streets. You touch a cow, you will see the people coming on the streets. Why? Because God has blinded our consciences because you forsook truth and mercy. Understand? Look all around and you will see what is happening. Exactly what he says is happening around the world. Around the world. Oh, Cecil the lion was shot by a dentist. Okay, he should be Sentence according to the law. Everybody is on Facebook and everybody in the Christian world uproar. You are killing babies in their millions and you are fighting for the right to kill those babies. How warped your thinking is. You have been blinded, handed over. Where you are not able to see the darkness in your soul. Cry should be this, not fuss for others. First cry is, Lord, let me see the darkness in my own soul first. That I am not blinded to my sins. Before saving anybody else. Because only a supernatural divine God can do that. He blinds us, we are blind. Even salvation is a supernatural work of God. They condemned Jesus' disciples for picking corn on Sabbath, forgetting that in the same Torah, they preached about David eating the shoe bread from the holy place. How can you be so blinded? Hey dudes, was David a Levite? No. Is he from the tribe of Judah? Yes. Are you allowed to eat from the shoe bread which is in the holy place? No. If you eat, you are supposed to die. Did anybody judge David and his servants? No. Picking one corn, putting... Oh, you've broken the law. How blinded you are. How blinded. Mercy and truth may appear to be opposites, but they are not. Mercy seeks to avoid judgment for the benefit of another, while truth demands to do all right for oneself. That's the difference. But they are not incompatible. Do you remember the servant who had this small million dollar debt? And the king said, okay, forgiven, forget. The dude goes and another servant owes him thousand rupees. He takes him and puts him in prison. When the king hears about him, he is enraged. He said, what did I forgive you for? What did I forgive you for? This is where we have to be very, very careful. We have to deal with issues. Okay, because issues is connected with the running of a home and organization, everything. But when we rage over somebody's failings, God says, I overlooked 
all your failings. And you're picking on this? Picking on this? First of mercy. So which is most important, mercy or truth? How do you reconcile this? God is the God of truth. And Psalm 103 verse 8 says, Lord is merciful, gracious, low to anger, abounding in mercy. He's both. That is why we have to buy wisdom. That's the wisdom we do not have unless God gives. We don't have that wisdom. Humanly possible, we don't have that wisdom. God has to give us that wisdom. How to reconcile this both. In James chapter 3 and verse 17, scripture says, the wisdom that is from above. There's a wisdom that comes from God and there's a wisdom that comes from man and from the demonic. It's first pure, then peaceable and gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy. Full of mercy. Willing to yield. See, let me tell you believers and believing couples, you don't have to win arguments. You don't have to win. If you believe something is true and it doesn't change the universe, stick to it yourself. Let the other person find it in his or her own time. My way or the highway. Certain things which you know are absolutes and which will fundamentally destroy a home, a church, an organization, you cannot compromise on it. But most things are not. Pharisees bend the letter of the law. They went according to the letter of the law. But 2 Corinthians 3.6 is very clear. It kills. The letter of the law kills. The spirit gives life. And we need that spirit of wisdom to look into the word and see what does this mean? Lord help me to make a judgment. What does it mean? How do I need to make a judgment on this situation? Yeah, in James 2.17, this is what God says. Yeah, 2.13, not 17, 2.13. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. We have no clue when we stand before God. What are the parameters of judgment until we read the Bible? Uh, Lord, I did. I, I was in the cleaning team in the church. I never missed a meeting. He will say, wait, wait, wait. You are, you are setting the rules for judgment. I am the judge, right? Sit down there quietly. Let me read. Uh, January 1995. You didn't forgive this one. Okay. February, you didn't forgive this one. You didn't show mercy to this one. You didn't show mercy to this one. You didn't show. And he looks at it. You didn't show mercy. Do you know my word? Judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Did you know my word? Did you know my word? The letter kills. The letter kills. Spirit gives life. Always, no, I, a Malayali pastor was telling me, <laughs> you have to hear some jokes only in Malayalam, it cannot be translated. 
he's saying his wife was fighting with him in the morning for a sari. And he says she went out that day for something and came back and after that she never spoke about the sari. So he's wondering what happened. That I don't know. He says what happened was when she was passing through, she found like, you know, heavenly place, one of these places. She saw an open coffin. And after that she didn't want a sari because she was suddenly reminded of her end. See, every day we have to live in the light of judgment. We will not fight over most things. So one of the things you should frame and keep in your house if you are somebody who struggles with things, have an open coffin. Whatever you wear, you will end up in that. And if you are buried with a rich sari, knowing the trend in India, they will dig it up after you have gone, open it, take your sari and put your bag nangu. That's what they do here. Okay? Sometimes we need to realize eyes have to be open because the letter kills the spirit. Most of the stuff we are fighting about it is so silly. For the letter kills. In John chapter 7, 23 and 24, this is what Jesus says. If a man receives circumcision on Sabbath so the law of Moses should not be broken, are you angry with me because I made a man completely well on Sabbath? Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous. He says, if you cut a small part of the skin on Sabbath, you're not breaking the law. But if you make somebody whole, you're breaking the law. What kind of a judgment? He says, can't you read through scripture? He says, you don't understand. You see, one of the constant things Jesus kept on saying is, you err because you don't understand scripture. You err. Err means to go wrong. You go wrong because you don't understand scripture. It is better to be a pagan than to be a man or a woman who walks in the letter of scripture. The Gentiles didn't kill Jesus. The Jews did. The Jews handed him over to them and they just did their civic duty because Pilate ordered. Left to the pagan world, they would have never crucified Jesus. They have more sympathy than the man who walks in the letter of the law. Understand that. Colossians 3, 12 and 14. 12. Therefore put on as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels. Oh, it's an old English term. Meaning your stomach should be full of mercy. When you open, burp, whatever, it should be mercy. (laughs) It should be full of mercy. I always think about this. All the sinners flocked around Jesus. Yet his truth walking. Absolutely holy. Sinless will not break one dot, one letter. And yet all sinners flock around him. Why? He will not bend one law. Upholds every law. Yet, because his bowels was full of mercy. Full of mercy. Don't think it cannot be balanced. It can as God. God truth. Because he is the God of truth. But let your bowels be full of mercy. Don't change truth. Don't be a liberal. Don't change truth. Because if you preach contrary to scripture, Galatians 1.9 says you are cursed. You do not have the right to change truth. Because only truth will save a person. Have I said to you, anyone who preaches any other gospel than what you have received, let him be cursed. You do not have the right to change scripture. 
Hate every false way. Psalm 119 and verse 128 will say, Hate every, therefore all your precepts concerning all things I consider to be right. And I hate every false way. We are not talking about compromising anything that God has said. No, 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 we are not talking about that. Two illustrations. This is God. If you justify the wicked, remember, it brings judgment. That's not what God is saying. Show mercy to the wicked. That's also not his saying. That's why I said you need wisdom. You cannot have it unless God gives it. First Samuel 3 and verse 13. I have told him that I will judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knows because his sons made themselves wild and did not restrain them. Now, God is not saying show mercy to the rebellious. No. God never shows mercy to the rebellious. He just leaves them alone to go in their way. But one iota of repentance, a little turning around, God comes to you. That's the difference. 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 2. Another situation in the Old New Testament. You are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he who has doing this deed might be taken away from among you. You tolerated it. Something abominable happening within the church, he said. That's why I said we need divine wisdom to balance this. Then reason, we will have favor with God and with man. So Micah 6, 8 will say, He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you to do? For that, what do you need? Truth. To love mercy. And walk See, to walk with, see, you see how Enoch walked with for 300 years? Wife, are you coming to church? No. Okay, honey. Son, are you coming? No. Are you coming to pray? No. Okay, honey. He's walking with God. Truth and mercy. He's not letting anything stop him from walking with God, yet he does not drag somebody to walk with him. He walked with God alone. Love truth. Love mercy. That's why God took him alone. That's why I said truth is expensive. It may cost you everything. Everything he loved on earth, he lost. But he got what he loved in heaven. That's why I said put your heart and your affections on God. On God. That's why we need this divine wisdom. Because it's it's the only way we can walk with God. A wise man will defend God's truth absolutely. But understand, truth allows for mercy. Because he knows he only has the facts and only God knows the truth. I feel this, this sad stories you hear in the news coming from India, this news never comes out. But you know, somebody was imprisoned for something for 30 years. And then new evidence has come from forensic evidence and finds out he was innocent and is released after 30 years in prison. And they throw some money at him as compensation, as if money can make up for the life you lost. No. That's why we have these powerful sayings which says, let not one innocent be punished even if a thousand guilty go free. Why? Because we don't know the facts of anything. I have 
given you examples no, without knowing the facts. Let us say Sami. Uh, Sami goes to Suchitra. He's actually gone. Not I'm just giving an example. Now don't, don't make that into a story. Okay, he went to buy wine for my wife to marinate the meat. So he's standing there before the wine shop. Johnny Wines. Ah, let us say, whom shall I pick? Deepika is passing that way. And Deepika says, Are you Samyana drinks? Nobody knew this? Nobody. This is what we call in circumstantial evidence. But we make that into truth. Before you know, one week later, nobody has read their Bible. Half the church knows. He said, now he's a drunkard. And after that, somebody adds, if you drink so heavily, we wonder what else you must be doing. That's why Mark Twain said, before truth has put on its shoes, lie has gone twice around the world. And we don't know facts. We don't even actually know the facts. Forget truth. Be very, 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 very careful. That's why leave judgment to those who have given authority to judge. You need to realize, everybody doesn't have the same capacity to judge. In the Old Testament, when Israel was being formed as a nation, God said, you judge over 50, because that's the only capacity he has. You judge over 100. You judge over thousands. That's why Kavanaugh was being brutally being exposed, because you're going to the highest court in the United States. We need to be very sure every judgment you make will fit that position you're going to sit in. So if you don't have the the capacity to judge, don't judge, leave it alone. First, if you don't know scripture, don't judge. Because those who know scripture don't, don't judge. They are very fearful about judging. Because they know, you need to be very, very clear, careful about judging. In Isaiah 55 verse 8 and 9, scripture says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. And my thoughts are from your thoughts. We all know this, but we don't know the context. Context without, text without the context is a pretext. I don't understand all that. Ask Pastor Vidya after the service. Verse 6 and 7. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way. The unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. That is what God is saying. You don't know my ways. We will look, read, Manasseh filled Jerusalem streets with blood. And Manasseh repents and God shows him mercy and brings him back. He says, God, how can you do this? God says, you don't know my ways. You don't know my ways. Woman is brought with adultery. Stoner. What's it? Anybody without sin carry? And they all, he looks and says, nobody to condemn your sister? No. Good daughter. I also don't condemn you. They don't understand his ways. Did he break the law? The law says everybody can be convicted only by two or three witnesses. Even the witnesses have to be examined first. They were really witnesses. Because the punishment for false witnesses was severe in the Bible. He says, nobody? I am the only one who knows the truth. There are no two. I will uphold the law. You can go. Mercy, don't sin again. It is in this context, he says, my ways are higher than your ways. My mercy is like the ocean. It's like an ocean. Ahab can repent. And God says, okay, 
I am not going to judge him now. Lord, how can you? See, our problem is when we see all these wicked rulers and politicians and all and say, oh, I am sure fiery hell is prepared for him. You don't know that fellow repents and goes to heaven while we are struggling to get in. The reason is everybody enters into heaven because only they repented and asked for mercy from God, not by your works. And righteous people hate it. They hate it because your works are not counted at all. But the most liberating thing for sinners, thank you Lord, you are not counting my works. Because if your works are counted, even hell will not receive me. (laughs) That's how sinners look at it. And God is saying, heaven is willing to receive you. Mercy and truth met perfectly in Jesus. Perfectly. And therefore, you know what happened? In Psalm 85, verse 10. Righteousness and peace have kissed. Wow. That's a message in its own. I'm not getting over it. Think about it. You muse about it. Grind your teeth on it. Mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed all in him. In Christ. In Christ. He forgave the soldiers who stripped him. Who nailed him. And they were casting lots for his clothes. Luke 23, 34. Look at it. No, 34. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And they divided his garments and cast lots. They're hearing him. Okay. One nice piece of cloth, they didn't want to tear it. So they said, let us cast lots who will get it. They stripped him. They nailed him. He's praying for them. And one centurion, you know that, he believed. He says, truly this is the son of God. Why did he believe this is the son of God? Because he saw mercy and truth together. He heard him and he knew this has to be the son of God. He provided mercy for his mother while hanging on the cross. John 19 verse 26 and 27. Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by and he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his home. Showed mercy. There's something strange, okay? Now, don't get all inflamed if you're an ex-Catholic or current Catholic. There's, there's an issue. You see, we, we read scripture, but we don't realize much of scripture that comes from certain people are prophetic and they don't understand what they are saying. Like the song of Deborah or the song of Hannah or the song of, uh, of Mary and all are prophetic with the Holy Spirit is using them and bringing in the remembrance of the writers who will write it down later. But often they did not understand what they were saying. Understand that. Mary was just a below ordinary lady, simple girl with faith, accepted Gabriel's message, conceived. After that she didn't understand a thing that was happening in her son's life. When her son said, why were you looking for me? Was I not at my father's house? Scripture says she didn't understand. One thing you will realize, you will never find Mary in any of Jesus' meetings. You'll find her outside his meetings. She refused to sit under his teaching. Never. 
Therefore, when he is asked, told, your mother and your brothers, he said, who is my mother? Are you talking physical or spiritual here? My mother and my brothers are those who sit here, who know the will of God. Okay? The only time you will see her sitting in a meeting is after his death and his resurrection. Then you see her sitting with the apostles. But he extended her mercy. Mary, you abandoned your back to all the revelations you got 33 years ago. Everything. You turned your back. You know who I was. You didn't understand. You didn't seek. You never were my meetings. You never listened to anything that I had to preach. Mary Magdalene is following. Salome is following. This one are all following. But you? You don't come for my meetings. You're always outside trying to pull me out of the meetings. But you showed mercy. You read scripture closely, you will see a lot of things that will show you truth which demands mercy. He could crush the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes with his infallible use of truth, yet could show pity and forgive harlots seeking mercy. That was Jesus. That is the balance in him. So learn from him. He's meek and lowly. Learn from Jesus. And parents, teach them to your children. The value of two things. Truth and mercy. When you do that, you're preparing them for a life of favor with God and with man. And they will find favor with God and with man. And all the others also. If you reorient your thinking and change the way you think and behave, you will find favor with God and with man. Joseph was so truthful. And so merciful, it didn't matter what pit he was put in. He always found favor. Every time it is written, God is with him. He was so honest that his Gentile master gave his entire business into hands and says, now I can take a vacation. I was looking for a steward like this. Think for a minute. Can you be trusted that way? Can Is truth bound around your neck? Can your boss, your master, anybody commit something into your hands? Not only I know he will not steal anything or do anything contrary, I also know that everything that I have told, he will do it to the T. Can that be told? That was Joseph. Yet he extended mercy. When he is governor of Egypt, he didn't show revenge to Potiphar, his wife, the people in the prison, nor even his brothers. No revenge. Why? You know, he found favor always with God and with man. Whatever he dealt with his brothers was not because he was mad. It was only to bring them into repentance. That's why we need to read Proverbs 3 and three and 4 again. Read through it once again. That, bind that. Let not mercy and truth forsake you. Never. Buy it. Seek it. Hold on to it for dear life. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. And so find favor and high esteem in the sight of God and sight of man. Read through the actual successful people in the Bible, not in the world. And if you see something common about all of them, you will see it is this. So I close last two minutes. First Samuel 18, 14 to 16. 
And Saul saw and knew that Lord was with David and that Michal. No, before that, didn't I give you? 14 to 16. And David behaved wisely in all his ways and God was with him. Therefore, when Saul saw that he behaved very wisely, was afraid of him. David is just a shepherd boy who has just come into the king's service. This is the king. The king is afraid of this boy because he realized God is with him and God is not with him. And he had a wisdom beyond his years, though he never went to college. He had favor with God and favor with man. And then God is working it all out. And the next one? No, 24. Yeah. Then uh, Saul saw and knew that Lord was with David and that Michal, Saul's daughter, loved him. And Saul was still more afraid of David. So Saul became David's enemy continually. And the previous one which you put? All of Israel. And all Israel and Judah loved David because he went out and came in before them. Did you see? Israel loved him. Judah loved him. God was with him. King's daughter loved him. It doesn't stop there. 19.1 Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted greatly in David. Look at it. At every hand, the king's hand was stopped. The army loved him. The people loved him. The king's daughter loved him. The king's son loved him. And they all put a ring around David to protect him from the anger of the king because he found favor with God and favor with man. Why? Because he bound truth and mercy. You will see through his life. Daniel 6, 3 and 4. And this Daniel distinguished himself above the governors and the satraps. Now it is not this thing. How many provinces were there? From India till six, uh, 110 or something. Okay, so these are all the governors. Among them, he excelled because an excellent spirit in him and the king gave thought to setting him over the whole realm. Think, just think about this. Think about this. A Persian king putting a Jewish man over the entire realm because he sees this man as an excellent spirit. So God, he has favor with God and favor with man. See, you cannot substitute what God's word talks about with hard work and intellect. That's common in the world. Favor with God and favor with man only comes through certain ways. And that surpasses everything the world can offer. Mordecai, Esther 10.3. Yeah. For Mordecai, the Jew was second to King Ahasuerus and was great among the Jews and well received by the multitude of his brethren, seeking the good of his people and speaking peace to all his countrymen. See, all these people were people in extremely hostile circumstances. In the midst of their enemies. Yet, they found favor with God. And therefore, they found favor with man. So this morning, as we close, shall we stand up? As we close, let the message continue to ring in our ears. And say, Lord, I look at all these people in the Bible. We... You may not be 
intellectually superior than your colleagues in your office or class. You may not have all the experience others have. You may not have the influence others can bring. But you have favor with God. And favor with man. Because scripture says it is the favor of God that makes a man prosper. Today, check our thoughts. God's word says, think on those things that are noble, that are peaceable. Remember the old message, where your mind is today, it's where your body will be tomorrow. Be careful where you want to be tomorrow by thinking, being careful about what you think today. Change the way you think about people. Change. What they may have done to you is, is, is a fact. But it doesn't matter. Put it behind. Because you have to move on with God. That's the only thing that matters. To do justly. To deal with mercy and to walk humbly with God. Ultimately, it's all about walking with God and not walking with man. Because if you are merciful and truthful, even if every man on earth refuses to walk with you, you have a God who will walk with you. And eternity is about God, it's not about man. And if you stand up for truth, And because of truth, you are thrown into that fiery furnace. God of truth himself will stand beside you. Father, this morning we just come to you, Lord. We just want to thank you. We just want to praise you. Once again, Lord, we confess, who are we that you are mindful of us? Who are we, the Lord, who can measure the universe with the span of his hand, who choose to dwell even in the heart of a broken and a contrite spirit? Why, Lord? Why would you help us to see how humble you are? That's why, Lord, you said, learn of me, for I am meek and lowly. Help us to appreciate the things that you appreciate. Help us to value those things that you value. Not to run after riches and gold and silver and reputation, esteem, but to have favor with God and with man. Help us to change, O Lord, the way we think, for that is salvation. That is repentance. This morning, Father, we come to you and we surrender before thee as a church. And I pray you would touch and you would heal and you would And you would restore. You would deliver. All those who are hurting within Lord. I pray you would touch them today. And heal them. And comfort them. I pray there will be no hardened heart. A stubborn spirit here. But hearts that will humble themselves. And bend before thee Lord. That the seat. Of our affections. You are seated there. That you are primary in our life. And we will not let your word depart from our mind and our lips, Lord. Touch. Touch us, Lord. Touch us. So I leave, Father, 
tonight. I come in the church and Pastor Vijay into thy hands. And I pray your presence will be always there with each one. You will protect them, preserve them, and keep them. Bleed the blood of Jesus, the blood of Jesus over the church. And I rebuke every work of the enemy. The stealers of your people's destiny, I rebuke you in Jesus' name. And I speak healing, I speak soundness in body and mind into the body of Christ. And the anointing will rest upon your servant every time he has to study, to teach. I pray the unction will work in him and through him. And people will have hearing ears and an understanding mind, O Lord. Bless your people and all the children who are away. I pray you would protect them and keep them too, Lord. Stretch forth your hand and bless your people, Lord. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Father. Now once again, believing the ministry of the word, the spirit of God and the blood of Jesus has sanctified and cleansed us. We choose to lift up holy hands and we choose to bless your holy name, Lord. We bless your holy name, we bless your holy name, Lord. And we proclaim and confess in thy house. Thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever and ever, Lord. Thank you, thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. Be with each one of us, Lord, till the very end. Thank you, Lord. For in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit rest and abide with each one of us. Amen and amen.